you. Please be seated. <clears throat> we're in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to go to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look together at verses 13 through 15, but um, I'll uh, pick it up here at verse 11. So, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> we read, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The passage for today. And you, being dead, <clears throat> excuse me, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we too would know and greatly enjoy that victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And though this world with devils filled should yet threaten to undo us, we pray that we too should not fear because you have appointed that name that is above every name that should be the, the strong tower of your saints to run into and be safe. We pray that you would bless us today in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We live in a time of renewed interest in spirituality, as you might know, in supernatural things, in the occult, in the unseen world. You might have noticed how much of this is there uh, in, in modern entertainment from uh, ghost hunters to vampires, from angels to astrology. Uh, our generation seems to be fascinated with the supernatural. In the last few years, there have been a huge number of exorcisms, particularly by Roman Catholic priests reported, and a large number of growing Pentecostal deliverance ministries for the same purpose, uh, probably some of our new openness toward the supernatural is the fruit of living in such an uncertain and irrational and increasingly violent and disappointing world. That is to say, people want help, and if science and reason and religion can't give it to them, well, they're ready to look elsewhere. Now, you might know that for most of the previous century, the American church in particular has had a harder and harder time seeing our lives as a conflict between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. But things seem to be changing now. New polls, for the first time in a long time, are showing an increasing number of Americans believe in the devil, and not just believe. As uh, one of my professors put it, uh, in the uh, older generation, they didn't believe in the demons, but the younger generation, they've talked to them last night. There are uh, many conflicting and cra crazy things, however, being practiced now in the church with respect to such spiritual warfare. Some of you know the name of Dave Pallison, 
Christian counseling professor at Westminster. His, uh, his book, Power Encounters, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare, surveys a number of things and concludes, quote, a great deal of fiction, superstition, fantasy, nonsense, nuttiness, and downright heresy flourishes in the church under the guise of spiritual warfare in our time. Uh, we hear all kinds of crazy stories. I even heard a few years ago about a particularly um, large uh, preacher, a famous preacher who uh, declared that he had had the demon of gluttony cast out from him. But then a few months later, he had to admit that he hadn't actually lost any weight. Um, it's always been a danger, I suppose, for people to blame too much on the devil. But if too much is sometimes blamed, there's a greater danger in America that we're liable to, that we can ignore the Bible's teaching on spiritual warfare and begin to embrace a secular, disenchanted view of the universe and reinterpret the Bible's teachings on the deeds of darkness as maybe psychological or sociological or political or even medical phenomena. I suppose the devil would be just as happy if we underestimated his powers, as modern Americans do, as if we overestimated his powers, as the Colossians apparently did, busying themselves to try to somehow appease these evil principalities. But the modern disenchanted world of rationalism and the superstitious world of ancient paganism are in fact both wrong. The Bible says, and the global church still knows, despite what America thinks, that such diabolical forces and such spiritual warfare still matter. Now, usually when people do think about spiritual warfare today, their minds go to some supernatural phenomenon, maybe some strange and creepy encounter the kind of thing that maybe happens with more regularity on the front lines of foreign missions. But you'll notice that what we have described here in Colossians, here and a few other references I'll point out to you in the book, is not some isolated, strange, individual or occasional concern, because this involves every last person in the world. That's the emphasis of this book. Every individual is either under the power of the kingdom of darkness or has been brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, as we read in chapter 1. The simple fact is that the work of the devil and spiritual warfare is not just here or there in some strange manifestation. It's everywhere. It's right here today that every one of you to whom I speak is either in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Every one of you are under the devil's tyranny or have been set free in Christ's liberty. And if you're in the enemy's camp, I pray that this day Christ will set you free. We consider from this passage what this means and how this Therefore, at the end, will shape our Christian worldview. Now, the passage before us that I read describes Christ has met our three greatest needs. Did you notice? 
that we were dead, spiritually dead, in sin, and needed new life. Second, we were condemned for that sin and needed forgiveness. And third, we were living captive to the evil principalities and powers, and we needed deliverance from the dominion of darkness. And now in our text, Paul tells us God has met all three of these needs for you in Christ. And let's just look at all three of them briefly and consider what it means for how we view the world. First, the passage tells us that in Christ, we're alive. In Christ, we're alive. Verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Well, what does this mean? In that verse, you notice there are two dimensions of this death. Our transgressions, the, the sins we've committed, and the uncircumcision of our flesh, which I explained last time, refers to the sinful nature of our fallen race. And the fact is that there is more wrong with us than just the things that we've done or not done. There is this corruption of heart, this, this twisting of soul and of mind and desire that we've had from the beginning and that gets us from the start off on the wrong course, to say the least. Well, in the Bible, this is called death. This state of existence, perhaps, in the world that has no hope, is without God, and all the misery, the unhappiness, the failure, the frustration, the disappointment and fear and despair of human life that flows from it, that mode of existence is called death, spiritual death, you might say. It's in everything in human life that sin ruins, all the ways that it harms and destroys um, violated children and addictions and crushing disappointments, every failure of human life to rise to its potential, the aimlessness, the pointlessness, the meaninglessness of existence without hope and without God in the world. All of that is death. And imagine a world of nothing but that. Because when people carry this state of death with them into the world to come, the Bible ominously calls that hell, quote, the second death. A world of nothing but that. And the opposite, life, is understood the same way in the Bible. It's all that we long for life to be with purpose and hope and joy and satisfaction and richness and life in communion with God himself and hearts full of the love of God. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a very potent word. And Jesus was always talking about it. We read it earlier. He says later, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. There's a vast, vast difference between death and life just as there is between, he says in this chapter, dead religion and new life 
in a risen living Savior. The contrast is real. Death is already at work in the world. And how can we go from death to life? Well, obviously no amount of effort on our part, on the part of a corpse, can bring life from the dead. Corpses aren't able to do anything. Only God can raise the dead. And so we read here, verse 13, He made you alive together with Him, that is, with Christ. Becoming a Christian isn't just a matter of resolving to turn over a new leaf. It's the very power of God that brings dead people to spiritual life. And here, to believe in Jesus is to be raised to life with Him as Jesus was, verse 12. Now, you might ask, okay, how do I know if I have spiritual life? Well, how do you know that you're physically alive this morning? I'm not so sure about some of you, but some of you uh, out there do have some physical signs of life. You're, you're uh, breathing, you're warm to the touch, your heart is beating, you have an appetite, you're thinking about those snacks downstairs. Well, spiritually speaking, there are some very similar vital signs like this. You have a heart that beats for God. You have a hunger for God's Word. These things that used to bore you. You can't live in the sins that you used to, that perhaps didn't concern you at the time. You have a growing uh, grace in Christ, and your heart is warm toward Him. This is the first thing we find in the passage that God has given to us who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's given you life. Life now, life eternally, life to the full. In Christ, we are alive. In Christ, we are forgiven. Verse 13, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know that as a warning to others, the Romans would nail the charges of the accused criminal to his cross as he died. Can, can you envision all the sins that you've committed, all the crimes, all the treasons against the King of Kings, past, present, future, all nailed there to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why He died. I saw a church sign this week. It said, uh, sins are expensive. Who's paying yours? Um, the Bible reserves some of its most dramatic language for this. It speaks about God casting our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west. It talks about God burying our sins in the depths of the sea, trampling them under His feet, casting them behind His back, remembering them no more. But I think the most vivid one of all is before us today, nailing them to the cross. That is good news. And someone might say, well, I, I know that he's died, but I, I can't really believe that God has loved me. I'm just too unworthy. The Bible doesn't assure us, like people might today, oh, you're not as unworthy as that. I think you're being too hard on yourself. Oh, no. The Bible says that God, knowing the very worst about us, has loved us still, and for this very reason sent his Son to die for our sins. And the triumphant language in this verse is uh, to make us rejoice that uh, Christ has put them away 
so gloriously and dramatically. The uh, Church of England has a statement of faith called the 39 Articles that says this, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not of our own works and deservings. Wherefore, listen to this, they that are justified by faith only, sorry, that, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Uh, a most wholesome, that is, healthy doctrine and very full of comfort. Health-giving, promoting wellness, beneficial, nourishing. And uh, so Paul drags it out a little bit to say, uh, people, in the pages of Scripture, you must sing with joy and wonder at the forgiveness which God has lavished upon us for the sake of Jesus Christ. We're not only alive, we're forgiven fully and finally. And third, and last today, in Christ we are delivered. We are delivered, verse 15, having disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, his cross. Uh, compare chapter 1, verse 13. He, that is Christ, sorry, uh, God here, God, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Delivered from the powers of darkness. Okay, so this is the second time now Paul has specifically mentioned principalities and powers. And a few of you have asked me in the last couple of weeks, uh, what does that mean? Um, are there various ranks in the forces of evil, like there are among angels we know? Well, it seems like it. And what's being emphasized here, it seems, is the greatness of that power that they have over men until Christ delivers us. How does the devil and his forces principalities and powers exert their influence in the world? Well, it was from the beginning the same, principally over the whole world by deception and temptation, enticing us, deceiving us to our doom. The devil is therefore called in the Bible the deceiver, or the one who leads the whole world astray. Or as Jesus says, there is no truth in him, for he's a liar and the father of it. You, you, you wonder what's gone crazy with our world. The, the lies, the, the resulting miseries of our so-called enlightened society that it's visiting upon itself, this kind of self-suicide that we are conducting. Uh, all of the self-destructive behaviors and its effects. You think of the choices perhaps you yourself have made. The wicked, uh, insane things you've decided to do. The things you believed. Because there is a power at work that is greater than that of mere psychology or human ideology or social currents. You, you watch the news as long as you can, right? There's a, there's a blindness to the facts a carelessness about truth, an inflexible loyalty to, frankly, ludicrous ideas, 
and indifference to human misery, especially the misery borne by the children in our own nation, an unwillingness even to consider the possibility that fundamental errors have been made. All of this in one of the most gospel-enlightened nations in history, evidence that our world is yet in the grip of something far more powerful than itself, enthralled to a diabolical influence. And so the Bible reminds us that the power of the devil is manifest not only generally speaking in the world, but specifically in false religions, especially in those particularly wicked activities that accompany them. You, you wonder how it was that people could ever worship God, or think that they were worshiping God, I should say, through the most destructive forms of sexuality and crass idolatry, even burning their own children as a sacrifice to please God, they think? How, how could you get to that conclusion? I mean, we still have in this country the ritual sexual abuse of children. How could people be so deceived as to call evil good and good evil? The devil is said everywhere to oppose the truth of God, as Paul writes elsewhere, how the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. The devil relentlessly corrupts the truth in the church and tempts its leaders and its great scholars to go astray, to sin, to error. Paul writes about the doctrine of demons that has even then come into the church. When the Son of God first came into the world to bring salvation to it, there was a kingdom and a king that was already there to oppose him at every turn. And if the existence of the devil and demons explains anything in human history, it explains what happened to Jesus himself. From the moment he was born, practically, and Herod orders the death of all the children in Bethlehem. He has opposed the kingdom of Christ ever since. Now, there are certainly more personal attacks that the devil makes against individuals, and this evening I'll be taking that up specifically. Well, what about the individual struggles that we have, the attacks that we face, and how we must stand against the wilds of the devil? Uh, some of you have been asking me about that. Very, very important. Not what Paul takes up here in Colossians, but he does elsewhere, and I'll be speaking about this evening that this evening. But following Paul's lead here, I'm talking about this overall influence that evil principalities and powers have over the whole world and every individual in it. That's what's before us. Paul said in chapter 1, there are only two kingdoms, and if you are living for yourself today, you think, the fact is you are under the dominion of darkness. You are now willingly joined to the devil and his treason against God, only to share at the end in his hellish, fiery demise, unless Christ sets you free. And the grip of these powers is too strong for you, but not for Jesus. And that's why this book emphasizes Christ's sovereignty over these spiritual hosts of wickedness. Uh, 116, chapter 1, verse 16. By Christ, 
All things were created that were in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He made them all. He governs them all. They are subject to him. And Christ has now taken away their power to hold the world in thrall. He's died to take our sins away. He's risen that we might have everlasting life in him. And the devil can no longer rightly accuse us because Christ has paid for our sins, point two. He can no longer hold our lives captive through fear of death and damnation because Christ has won our victory over death and hell, point one. And thus it is that Christ, we read, has now disarmed the principalities and powers, making a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in the cross. The picture here is of uh, a Roman conqueror's triumphal parade. The defeated enemies are then stripped of armor and uh, made to parade in shame behind the general in the streets, uh, in chains behind them. So Christ has triumphed over his and our enemies and made a public spectacle of them, as it were, at the cross. And Jesus says the good news is now being preached by his disciples. And as it's being preached, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the good news of Christ goes forth. People are set free. Satan is losing his power. The evil powers have lost their grip that they once had in our world. And as we are delivered ourselves into another kingdom and another family under the rule of the King of Kings, we are another trophy of Christ's victory. Uh, don't get me wrong, the war goes on. He is still called the ruler of this age, but the issue now has already been determined. It is ours to live in Christ's victory in the ongoing battle with unseen powers. We are his trophies as well. And so what I'm saying is, just as every Israelite in the days of Goliath knew himself victorious, the moment that giant's body hit the ground over all the other forces arrayed against him, so the Christian knows himself safe and secure the moment we have committed ourselves to our champion, the Lord Jesus. Our adversary has, in principle, already been conquered, his kingdom already consigned to perdition, in principle. He continues to rage, but he has met his match and his doom is sure. And we are called in this passage to live in joy of this victory. We often think about uh, how Christ has delivered us from our sins and our guilt, but this passage before us today shows us the, the fullness of that salvation. In Christ, we've gone from death to life. We've been forgiven all of our trespasses, and we have been delivered from the powers of darkness, made alive, forgiven, delivered. This is the salvation of Jesus. I say again, if you are still under this power, my friends, my prayer is that today, and something that I've said, you might hear the rattle of those invisible chains that hold you, and the groans of the death march that you're now on, and that you would see then, secondly, the devil shrinking in humiliation as the king of kings rides forth to proclaim liberty to his captives and to all who would join his happy train of victory. This is the triumph in our passage before us.
Now, as we conclude, I'd like us to consider the time that remains, how this affects our Christian worldview. One of the uh, bitter, tragic chapters of the Second World War was that even in its final throes, long after it was perfectly obvious to everyone that Hitler's armies had been defeated, Hitler had his security forces and his secret police continue a malevolent rage to wreak maximum destruction. Um, when, 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 when defeat seems certain, Hitler had the gas chambers and ovens in overdrive in the concentration camps. Political and religious prisoners who had been kept, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, were taken out and hanged just before they would have been liberated by the Allies. Hitler demanded his army destroy Germany itself rather than have it fall into the hands of his enemy. And so there, from his miserable bunker, issuing orders, he demanded vengeance even on his own subordinates who had failed to carry out his orders successfully. And to the very end, he dreamed of some crisis among the Allies that might permit him at the last minute to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. I mean, he was beaten but thrown into a rage at his defeat. He sought to bring as many others down with him as he possibly could. And that tortured man was only, in fact, reflecting the character of the diabolical master who pushed him on the whole way, even at last to his own self-destruction. This is the terrible reality that still continues in the world today. Hitler is gone but his master still lives. And the devil is full of rage knowing that his time is short. This is the picture we have in the Bible. Defeated, yes, but malevolent to the very end. And for the thoughtful Christian, this single fact that the devil is still spitefully at work in the world explains so much of our world that otherwise we would find inexplicable. I mean, people today pride themselves on their progress, on their enlightenment, on their moral superiority. And as has always happened, future generations will be left to wonder about us, how supposedly decent people would have been so foolish, so wicked, so selfish, and so, so self-destructive as to ruin the wor their world and the lives of people in it in such a way. The, the fall of man into sin and death through the power of the devil, that explains the history of our race in a way that, frankly, evolution does not and cannot. That we were, in fact, made by God in his image, but have now fallen under the power of darkness. That explains why human beings are as they are, both wonderful and terrible, knowing good and doing evil, being gifted beyond belief, and yet somehow at the same time inclined to use those very gifts in the worst possible ways. Education does not save us from this. Technology has only made it worse. Human life, as we know, is not what it could be but there is a way back. Now, as I said earlier, for a long time in our country, 
belief in the devil has been, uh, I don't know what you want to say, falling, but regarded with a kind of polite contempt by much of the so-called educated classes of society. Meanwhile, in this past century, we have committed more generally, genuinely satanic crimes against God and man than probably any century of previous history, certainly in terms of a death count. Man believes less and less in the existence of his true ruler, the father of lies, who has deceived them even about himself. But he is having his day. Now, the church has often, too often, found itself conformed to the world in this way, concerning itself too much with smaller concerns while ignoring the true spiritual battle that rages all around us. As Christians, therefore, we need to reject this secular naturalism, this concern only about what we can see and touch from this modern age. We cannot believe, we cannot be convinced that all of our personal and societal problems can be reduced to just psychological or sociological or circumstantial factors. We need to understand this world. Maybe you need to re-envision this world as the spiritual battleground it is in which there is a fight to the death unto victory for Christ's kingdom and men's deliverance. And we need to remember from this that prayer matters in this unseen, against this unseen foe. Watch and pray, Jesus said on that dreadful night. We need to remember that there are, in truth, eternal stakes in this battle. And if we don't accept the life or death urgency that Jesus and his disciples constantly convey in their teaching, well, maybe we'll put life and death urgency into lesser things, Maybe social justice will become the greatest concern, making earthly problems appear much bigger than they are, but not addressing the root of the matter. Putting a Band-Aid on people that are dying of an internal cancer. When Paul says that as Christians, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realms, he is, in fact, explaining the world that we see. And I think trying to give us some sympathy or seeking, seeking that we might have some sympathy for people still held in thrall. I think this is perhaps intended to soften our hearts toward the world whose sins and spitefulness toward the truth of God and man can provoke bitterness, resentment in the Christian soul. This reminds us that our human beings are sadly, though willingly, in thrall to the powers of darkness with mighty deception, even if they don't know it. That they are doing the bidding of a cruel master, even if unknowingly. And therefore, our spiritual warfare in this world must advance powerfully through the ordinary means. That is to say, the kind of encounters that uh, we might read in Jesus casting out demons here or dis dispatching spirits there, 
that's not the ordinary means for the advance of the kingdom of God's Son in the world. It is, of course, through uh, light and life and uh, forgiveness and deliverance from the powers of darkness. In other words, evangelism and discipleship. We're not talking today about the uh, strange encounters and the kinds of attacks which I, I, I don't want to minimize. We're talking today about the worldwide struggle that encompasses every single individual. You know, the ancient rite of baptism included a question for the candidate. The ancient question was, do you renounce Satan and all his works? Maybe it wouldn't go over as well today, but that is the fact. People are renouncing one kingdom for another. And this is an important part of the spiritual conflict we are in. Perhaps it was for this reason that uh, the ancient world sought much more to instruct people about the nature of their spiritual warfare than we do today. Perhaps it's too easy for us to forget about such things, but it's been to our hurt. Even in this recent uh, season in our country, it was natural for us to contemplate the birth of Christ and the beauty of pastoral scenes painted in Luke, or to the honor paid to a newborn, to the newborn king by the Magi from the east in Matthew. Perhaps it has not seemed as natural to us to envision the coming of the Messiah as D-Day for the kingdom of evil, when the decisive turn in this great war that is the history of the world and every human life has ever lived in it was made. But that is what it was. Look up from those charming scenes of a manger and see the coming of Christ for what it was in the world. And Paul's largest point that he's making in this chapter is that the dead man-made religion cannot give you new life. It cannot forgive your sins. It cannot defeat the devil. But look up and see the crucified and risen Savior. He alone can. In him is our life, release, and victory. But let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we pray that we might uh, have a, uh, a holy wiseness about us, um, considering the disciples who saw so much more of the reality of evil and yet could not be moved to watch and pray when their, when their own uh, tw next 24 hours depended upon it. We, we long to have a, a greater wisdom than they. We are often lulled to sleep by the uh, um, by the distractions of the, of the secular, of the uh, comings and goings of the age in which we live do not see the larger picture of this uh, great titanic contest against the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. We pray that you would raise our eyes again to see Christ, our victor, and to see the uh, legions of uh, um, uh, the hosts of, of heaven, uh, white and clean, riding in his train, riding forth unto victory as we are given in Revelation. Truly, this is the, this is the need of the hour. 
that the kingdom of Christ might continue to push its advance and the gospel might have its career of conquest in the world. We pray that you would bless the work, therefore, of this church and all that we are doing. And we pray that you would free those from the cruel tyranny of Satan who are still held by him, whose, whose lives, perhaps openly, perhaps secretly, are still held in his terrible thrall. May the power of Christ that not only forgave our sins and brought us to life, so deliver each one of us unto his heavenly kingdom.